work. But we're going to be in Daniel chapter 8, uh, and, and I want to I read the entire chapter. Um, so I'm going to let you guys who are here remain seated for it, all right, unless you absolutely feel led to stand, which is perfectly okay. Uh, but we're going to read Daniel chapter 8, and the, the title of this morning's sermon is Comfort in Trying Times. Comfort in trying time. So hear the word of the Lord. It says, In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa, in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was beside the, the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there was a ram standing Beside the canal, he had two horns, and the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, and the longer one came up last. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and the south, and no animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and became great, and as I was observing, a male goat appeared coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his ears. He came toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the canal, and he rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram and infuriated with him. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly, but when he became powerful, the large horn was broken, and four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly army, made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and trampled them. It acted arrogantly even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. And in the rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, How long will the events of this vision last? The regular sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and of the army to be trampled. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored. And while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man, and I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Ulai, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing, and when he came near, I was terrified and fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and made me stand up and said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath, because it refers to the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Medea and Persia. 
The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the broken horn represent four kingdoms. They will rise from that nation, but without its power. And near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes, yet he will be broken, not by human hands. The vision of the evenings and the mornings has been that has been told is true. Now you who are to seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. But then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision and could not understand it. Heavenly Father, as we consider Daniel chapter 8 and this idea of comfort in trying times, Pray that you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear and that hearts will be encouraged to trust in you all the more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, again, good morning. We're back uh, in the book of Daniel. I know that was a lot, Daniel chapter 8. It's thick. I know I pronounced some things wrong because after I said them, I remembered the right pronunciation, but that's okay. You got the idea. But we're in our series entitled Dominion, Faith, and Worship. And just so you know where we're heading, a little heads up, uh, after this week, we're going to take a break from the book of Daniel for about three weeks. Uh, The elders have been kind. Uh, First, they kind of recommended, and then they approved, but me taking some time off to get away. So we'll be gone. Uh, The Matala family will be gone for the next, um, next three Sundays or so. Uh, So just getting a a little break, Uh, we'll still be worshiping with you via live stream because even though the elders might want me to completely take a break, I want to worship with you, so we'll be tuning in, but we'll be gone. And so if you need anything in the next few weeks beginning after today, uh, please feel free to call one of the other pastors and they will relay any significant things to me. But I believe that Pastor John and Pastor Lance are going to be doing a little mini-series on prayer. Is that right, Pastor John? So the next three weeks, we'll take a break and just get to focus a little bit on prayer. Uh, but again, this morning, we're going to continue on in chapter 8, and I want, to, I want us to consider this idea of comfort in trying times. Now, if you remember last week, chapter 7 marked somewhat of a switch in the book of Daniel, because through chapter 6, we had largely been reading the narrative of Daniel, so just kind of telling the story. It was a narrative. But then in chapter 7, it began to switch because chapters 1 through 7 were written in Aramaic, so it still kind of had that same feeling as the first six chapters, but we knew it was starting to change because now we were getting into visions. And now that change is kind of fully realized because from chapter 8 to the end of the book, it's purely visions, I'd say predominantly visions, uh, and it's written in the Hebrew language. So Daniel is kind of marking this shift. And I told you, and I want to remind you, that when you deal with visions, you're dealing with some thick stuff. And, and we're going to have to spend some time unpacking it. I don't want to just skimp past it all, because I think we should want to understand God's Word. And that can be a complicated passage of Scripture. So we're going to consider this idea uh, of comfort in trying times. Now, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that I 
I love about our God is that he's always been honest with us. I mean, I think sometimes we can take that for granted, but God has always been honest with us. God, God doesn't have a streak of sugarcoating things. We're down the road, we figured out it wasn't as good as we might have thought that it was going to be. Or, you know, God kind of gave us a little bit of good news, but didn't tell us the whole truth to just kind of keep us moving along. God doesn't do that. He doesn't sugarcoat things. God has always, he's always been a God who shoots us straight. And you, we don't always do that, if we're honest, right? We don't, we don't always do that. Let me, let me give you an example. It's somewhat of a, a silly example, but I think it will kind of prove my point a little bit. It's something that you might not know about me. I mean, most of you who are here, but if you're watching, that you might not know about me is that, that I actually have quite a lot of tattoos. I know it's not something you normally hear from a pulpit, right? I think I have like 10 of them or so. Now, most of them I keep hidden so I can keep up the appearance of a, you know, a good Baptist pastor, but I have a few. And so back in, in 2017, uh, my wife and I, we traveled down to, to Florida, uh, and on the way back, we were going to stop in South Carolina, where one of my, my best friends in the whole world lives there, and he happens to be a, a tattoo artist. And Aliyah and I had been talking for some time about we, how we, she really wanted to get kind of the cute matching family tattoos, and I was like, okay, I'm all for it. Now, mind you, Aliyah has no, has no tattoos at this point, none whatsoever. And, and so as we're driving and getting closer, uh, she asked me a, a question. And she said, hey, Michael, is this going to hurt? And so me being the good husband that I am, I told her, nah, not really. Uh, it feels kind of like a teeny tiny little bee sting, but it's, it's, it, it's not that bad. So she said, okay. We went for it. I went first and did it with a straight face. And she's up next. And I noticed the moment the needle touched her wrist that she knew I was a liar. And afterwards, I asked her the question, and I said, so how was it? And my wife looked at me and my friend who had given her the tattoos, and mind you, he has quite a few, and she looked at us and she said, you guys are idiots to ever get more than one of these, which was probably a fair assessment at the time. But she asked me, why didn't you tell me that it was going to be like that? And as I mentioned before, sometimes we're not as good at shooting people straight. But one thing I love about our God is that he always shoots us straight. And he never softens the blow. God has told us that man's heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. God has told us that the world has corrupt systems in place. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. God has told us that following him will, will require sacrifice and struggle for believers. If anyone would follow me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. God has told us that following him will result in pain and persecution and loss in this life. 2 Timothy 3. In fact, all who want to live a godly life will be persecuted. And God has told us that it's only going to get worse until the end. Again, 2 Timothy 3. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. But God has also told us that though this world rages, 
he has overcome. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he has reminded us that everything we face in this life pales in comparison to what faithfulness will receive in the life that is to come. This light momentary affliction is creating in us an eternal weight of glory. God has always been honest with us. And in our text this morning, we see God being honest with Daniel about what the future holds for his people. And it is simultaneously terrifying and yet comforting. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to draw out a few points that we see. So we see how God is showing comfort to Daniel in these trying times. But before we do that, we got to kind of do what we did last week and spend a, good, spend a good bit of time just unpacking this text so we understand it. Uh, and again, I know this is going to stretch us, and I want to encourage you to, to bear with me because we're going to get into some history again. We're going to get into some theological ideas again. But, but bear with me because God saw fit to record this for us, to have it written down, which means we need to understand it and see how we apply it to our lives. Amen? All right. It's good to have somebody say it back to me when I say amen. So before we kind of get into those points, let me, let me break down this text. So once again, Daniel has a vision. And we are told in verse 1 that it occurred in the third year. So, so this is a couple years after the vision that we read in chapter 7. Remember that, that Belshazzar is, is, is a, a Babylonian king. And so he's the last Babylonian king of that empire. And in this vision... And so first he sees a ram. And verses 3 and 4 say, I looked up and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was up last. I saw the ram charging to the west and the north and the south. And no animal could stand against him and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted and he became great. And so later on in, in the chapter, what we just read, remember that the angel Gabriel is sent by God. And a fun fact, this is the first time in the Bible that an angel has been mentioned by name. So this is the first named uh, angel that we see. And so God tells Gabriel, tell Daniel what all this means. And, and so Gabriel tells him about this ram in verses 19 and 20. He says, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath. Because it refers to the appointed time of the end. And the two-horned ram that you saw represent the kings of Media and Persia. So God was telling him that, that first, the Medo-Persian Empire will conquer. And that's what God's telling him. That you're in the midst of a Babylonian Empire, but what's coming next is this ram. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. It's King Cyrus or also King Darius. And they're going to come and they're going to take over. It says that, that they came from the east, right? So they conquer west, north, and south. And if you know anything about history, you know the Persian Empire took over everything. I mean, it was a huge empire. And so God is telling Daniel, that the Medo-Persia Empire will conquer. And we know that Daniel experienced that reality. He saw it come, tr come true when Belshazzar was, was conquered, where he, was, where he died just a short time after this vision. But here's something that's really interesting to note, that God, is already, God had already predicted that this was hap would happen. 
150 years prior, the, the prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 45 verse 1, the Lord says this to Cyrus. Now Cyrus is the king of what? Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. The Lord says this to Cyrus, 150 years before, his anointed, whose hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and disarm kings, to open doors before him, and even city gates will not be shut. You see, God's dominion is riddled throughout all of this. God has been planning this thing for quite some time. Everything is unfolding for a plan and a purpose. And it's God's plan and God's purpose. And and I don't want to lose the weight of that. I mean, let's just pause for a minute and take comfort in that, that God had been orchestrating this thing for hundreds of years. I mean, that's how sovereign he is. That's how far his dominion expands. That, that even before Cyrus was thought of, God had named him by name and said that this king is the one that I will use to overthrow Babylon. But then Daniel sees a goat. And so we read beginning in verse 5, as I was observing. So he's looking at the ram. He says, I was observing and a male goat appeared coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. Talks about the goat had a horn between his eyes and that he came toward the ram. He said, I saw him approaching the ram and and infuriated with him. He struck the ram, breaking his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat acted even more arrogantly. But when he became powerful, the large horn was broken. And four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing toward the four winds of heaven. And so Gabriel explains this to Daniel in verses 21 and 22. I love that that Gabriel says the shaggy goat. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king and the four horns that took place or that took the place of the broken horn represent four kingdoms they will rise from that nation but without its power so gabriel tells daniel that that this goat is greece he tells him that there's this kingdom that will rise up after the medo persian empire and they will conquer the medo persian empire and, and and like this ram they will conquer everything But what is amazing to me, which it shouldn't be if we genuinely believe in the sovereign control of our God, is the amazing accuracy in the detail. That again, that reminds us that God is orchestrating this so perfectly. So first, it speaks of, of the goat having a single horn that comes up from his head. Now, I'm gonna give a pop quiz for those of you who are here. You can write it in the chat if you think you know the answer. But who would that first king of Greece be? Does anyone know? Alexander the Great. Someone that we have heard of. And this first king, Alexander the Great, comes and he he brings Greece to this place of prominence. He's a great historical figure that we know existed even beyond biblical records. But what's interesting, it speaks of the goat moving in such a way that it, it, it looked like it wasn't touching the ground. One of the things that historians have said about Alexander the Great and his army of 35,000 was that they conquered at such a blistering pace that their enemies believed that their feet never touched the ground when they attacked. 
Now, you have to understand something here that the Medo-Persian Empire was in power after the fall of Belshazzar for nearly 200 years, for nearly two centuries, from 550 B.C. to 331 B.C., and they conquered everything. And Alexander the Great conquered the entire Medo-Persian kingdom in 10 years. But then it speaks of the four horns that will come after the first was broken. And we know from history that after Alexander the Great's death, his kingdom was split into four parts, each given to four generals. But it never retained the power that it had under Alexander the Great. Again, you see God's dominion as he works out these future events exactly as he wills and even our history testifies to the faithfulness of our God. But now you come to what is, I think, the really interesting part of this section. You see another horn. And it comes up beginning there in verse 9. It says, from one of them. So from one of the four horns that took over, so from one of the four generals It says, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south and the east and toward the beautiful land. Now, let me pause for a minute. Southeast of where this was would have been Jerusalem, which would have been the beautiful or the glorious land. So right off the bat, we know that this little horn is going to be in conflict with the people of God and the holy land of God. It says, it grew as high as the heavenly army and it made some of the army and some of the stars fall to the earth and it trampled them. It acted arrogantly, even against the prince of the heavenly army. It revoked, his regular sac- or it revoked his regular sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. And in the rebellion, the army was given up together with the regular sacrifice. The horn threw truth to the ground and was successful in what it did. And then again, the horn is explained by Gabriel in verse 23. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached the full measure of their sin, a ruthless king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne, and his power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. Now, in some regards, if we're honest, that explanation still leaves us with a good bit of questions as to who this is. So let me try to unpack this for you. But before I do that, I need to give you a little theology in terms of thinking through the end times and apocalyptic literature. So I want to give you a little bit theology about uh, theology in terms of end time and apocalyptic literature. And again, bear with me. Remember, We're not going to lose the forest among the trees, but we want to look at the trees, right? We want to look at some stuff. And this will be very important in some of the chapters to come because it's going to deal primarily with the end times. Uh, But when we consider the end times, let me just first say this, that they are shrouded in a great deal of mystery. A pastor and theologian that I respect was once asked if he could have clarity from God on three things in the Bible what would he pick? One of them was the end times. Because he said that 
that God has communicated clearly. The problem is we are finite beings living in a fallen world and we don't understand fully. It's not that God communicated poorly, it's that we just can't comprehend how amazing our God is. So it's shrouded in mystery in some sense. But when we consider the end times, there are three prominent views that come to mind. Now, now I want to say this. Thank you so much, sir. Um, <clears throat> there are other views, but these are kind of the three predominant views. So there's premillennial, don't get lost in the big words, premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. So premillennial, so like the millennium, premillennial, postmillennial, which is after the millennial, or amillennial. And I'm going to explain these to you. Um, these three views, they picked up their name because they center around this idea of the millennium in the book of Revelation, when Christ will reign for a thousand years. And Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1, reads like this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and he closed it and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years was completed. And after that, he must be released for a short time. So the views of kind of the end time and the millennium hinge somewhat on this passage in Revelation chapter 20, which speak of Christ reigning for a thousand years without the opposition of Satan. And so I want to kind of give you a very simplistic understanding of each of these views. Now, again, they are way more nuanced and there's breakoffs of each one of them, but I'm trying to give you the main picture here. So premillennialists, or those who hold to a premillennial view, they believe that the second coming of Christ, so when, when the saints who are here on earth will be raptured and taken up to heaven, right? You remember the Left Behind series, anybody? Some of y'all might be, okay, yeah. So they'll be raptured and taken up to heaven before Christ will literally reign on the earth for a thousand years. So they believe that the rapture happens pre the millennia, before the millennium, the thousand years. So that's what premillennials believe in a nutshell. Now, postmillennialists, they believe that Christ will come after this, or that the rapture will happen after this thousand year reign. So many, though, would say that the thousand-year reign is not a literal thousand-year reign, that it began at Christ's first coming, but what they do believe in kind of this golden age of righteousness that will happen on the earth. So you may have heard some people say that they believe that this great revival will sweep across this nation, that, that nations will become Christian, people will become Christian, we'll see a mighty, a, a mighty revival. They call it the golden age where this world will be, will be ruled by righteousness prior to Christ's return. It will be a world where, again, a revival of sorts prior to Christ's coming breaks out. And so Christ will come after this, this time, this time of Christ's reign, which will be seen in kind of this global revival almost. So that's what post-millennialists believe. After the, the reign of Christ, the thousand years, is when the saints will be raptured. But then you have a third view, and it's called amillennialists. Now again, there are multiple other views. There are preterists and things like that, but we don't, I don't take preterists seriously. Um, so if anyone watching is a preterist, you can email me, and I'll respond to it in three weeks. Um, 
But amillennialists, and I'm just going to throw this out there, this is where I land. This is my understanding of the end times. They tend to believe that the end times began with Christ's resurrection. So when Christ raised from the dead, that that began when you read things about the end times, that it started there, which I would argue we are living in the end times right now. Now again, some post-millennialists would argue that as well. But where we differ is that our uh, amillennialists like myself believe that you should interpret almost all apocalyptic literature as symbolisms not to be taken literal. So just to give you an example, I don't believe that saints will be raptured up at any point while other people are left on this earth. I think that Jesus comes back and the show's over, folks. That's a very, again, simplistic way. Millennialists tend to read end times literature as highly symbolic. Again, I fall into that amillennial camp, but I do want to say this. I don't hold that view that tightly. I think that this is an issue that you can openly disagree with and it doesn't change anything about the makeup of the church. I, I doubt that the pastors of Newbury don't all hold to the same view of the end times. That's okay. I'm not staking a flag in this. I'm not willing to die for my position. As one of my seminary's professors said, you can just threaten to slap me in the face hard enough and I'll change my position without compromise. I'm just not sure. But this is what I believe to be the best way, at least right now. And I've fluctuated in my kind of work in theology between all of them at some point. Um, yeah, we'll stop there. But I want to tell you there are a few reasons why I hold to this view of kind of the amillennial approach of the highly symbolic reading of, of end times writing. And the first is this, because any ancient apocalyptic writing, whether it was in the Bible or not, any ancient apocalyptic writing was understood to be one of the marks of the genre was highly symbolic. So it doesn't fully make sense to me that if every ancient writer was writing their end-time predictions and it was meant to be symbolism, that then God would, int- would choose to write in this genre but completely remake the genre so no one would know how to read it. So, so I think it's just consistent with how that genre worked. But second, I think that the Bible indicates it's using symbolism. I think the Bible tells us that it's using symbolism and we should interpret as symbolism. So let me, let me try to explain that a little bit. So one thing to note is if you recall, it talked about the little horn trampling the stars. Well, we know that stars is symbolism for something because this ruler isn't literally going to pull stars down and trample them on the ground. Who cares, right? It's talking about somebody. Well, we're the stars. You remember Genesis 15 and Genesis 22 when Abraham counted the stars? His descendants, those who would be in the faith, that's us. That's symbolism right there in the text. We'll see it again in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, where it talks about the stars being resurrected. I don't think that means that that he's going to pull star down and God's going to put stars back up. I think it's giving us hope of the resurrection that's coming for us in Christ. So I think the text itself tells you that it's using symbolism, but I think there's even more of a reason to interpret it as symbolism. Because if you remember back to chapter 7, so just last week, I know that, that strains us a little bit. There was a little horn mentioned in that text as well. Do you remember that? Who would wage war against the saints and against God himself. And he was, but he was said to have come from Rome. But here in chapter 8, the little horn is said to have come from Greece. A descendant of one of those four generals. So is the Bible confused? Does God not know where this great persecutor is coming from? The God who spoke 150 years prior, the name of the king that would conquer, who has been orchestrated? Does he not know? Of course that's not the case. 
What God is doing is he is using people as symbols and types of a greater enemy that is to come. So he looks at a ruler of Rome and uses him as a symbol of our great enemy, Satan. And now in chapter 8, he looks at this ruler in Greece and uses him as a type and a symbol of our great enemy. And we've got to think, there are types of Christ riddled all throughout the Old Testament. There's types of the great Savior. Why would there not be types of the great enemy that he is saving us from? And so these are types, these are symbols of a greater enemy. But the amazing thing is, so keep tracking with me. If you're here for the application, it's coming. But the amazing thing is we actually have a pretty good idea of who this actual person was that he's using as a symbol of our greater enemy. Again, we know that God is telling a bigger story than just this, this man from Greece. But we know who this little horn was. So one of the four generals who took over after Alexander the Great's death was named Seleucus. And one of his descendants from down his line was a man named Antichus IV Epiphanes. Antichus IV Epiphanes. Some of you who might know Jewish history or have read some of the intertestamental stuff, you, you know who this man is. And let me, let me read you what one commentator wrote about him. He said, although Daniel could not have known the identity of this figure... As history unfolded, the terrible ruler Antichus IV Epiphanes conformed closest to this prophesied blasphemer. And he writes this, There is virtually unanimous agreement among scholars and theologians that this little horn must be first identified as the Seleucid king Antichus IV. Now listen to this, who persecuted the Jews and desecrated God's temple. Antichus ruled from 175 to 164 BC, and 2 Maccabees reports how he ordered a slaughter of Jews, resulting in approximately 40,000 dying by violence and around the same number being sold into slavery. He says Antichus attacked the temple, and in 167 BC, he ordered the cessation of all regular, uh, regular offerings. Remember the little horn stopping the law? The Hebrew law it says on December 6, 1960, or 1967, no, on December 6, 167 BC, he set up an idol to Zeus on the altar of the temple, thus desecrating the sanctuary. And on December 16th, he defiled the altar by offering again sacrifices, including pigs, which were not kosher. And he cast down the truth. Remember that? By forbidding practices commanded in the law, like keeping the Sabbath and circumcision. And he forced Jews to adopt Greek customs and religious practices. And so in this prophecy that Daniel is seeing as a vision, some 400 years prior, God is telling his people what is going to happen to them in the future. But don't forget, God is also telling a bigger story. God is reminding his people in every point in history there is a real enemy. And so God is using Antichrist, this brutal ruler who, who fulfilled all of these prophecies to paint a picture of our greater enemy who is Satan. Now there's more we could say about all of this, but time won't allow me. 
But that's kind of the overall breakdown of what's going on in the text in terms of just understanding some of the pictures. Now at this point, if you're still with me, those of you who haven't turned off, you may be asking the question, what in the world does this have to do with comfort in trying times? Um, that's what we were hoping for. We want to we hear about how God comforts in trying times. Well, ultimately, I believe that is what God is communicating in Daniel chapter 8. He is comforting his people in the midst of trying times. So let me show you how he's doing that in three ways. First, God is revealing his trustworthiness. God is revealing his trustworthiness. Now, I'm, I might be wrong, but as far as I have read in Scripture, God has never given prophecies through individuals because he wanted merely to show off. I just haven't seen God doing that in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying there are times where God shows like he flexes his sovereign muscles, but in his prophetic word, I've never seen him just making idle threats and trying to show off. Because when God speaks specifically through prophets, it is always a reminder to God's people of his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, his faithfulness, his trustworthiness. When God speaks, he is often calling out sin or he is reminding of his faithfulness to the covenant. He is reminding us that he is a God who saves. He reminds people that he is a good and trustworthy God. And that is exactly what God is doing here with Daniel. He is reminding Daniel and those who would read this recorded vision later, including us, that he is a trustworthy God. I mean, think about it. God communicated through Isaiah 150 years earlier that Babylon would fall to Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire and Daniel watched it happen. And God is communicating that the Medo-Persian Empire would fall to Greece and the saints in Greece who were enduring this persecution of Antiochus could look back and trace the moment when God's word came true and the Medo-Persian Empire fell to Babylon. And so they could believe God when he said in verse 25 that he will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and by his influence. And in his, his own mind, he will exalt himself. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes. But then God says this in one simple phrase, nine words, yet he will be broken and not by human hands. And so the saints in the midst of persecution under Antiochus could read God's word, could read Daniel and be reminded that God has said all this other stuff would happen and it happened. So though this man rages against us, we believe that he will be broken and it will not be by human hands. The amazing thing about the story of Antiochus is that he did die and it wasn't by human hands. That's another tale for another day. So the saints, even enduring this persecution some 400 years later, could look at when God had spoken to them through the prophet Daniel and find comfort in trying times. And so church, for us, the saints now, we can look at a broken world understanding that Antiochus was just a shadow of a greater enemy and we can trust God when he says of that greater enemy, yet he will be broken and not by human hands and we saw that 
on the cross and we can look back and track and and track the breaking of our great enemy. You remember one of the first gospel proclamations in all of the Bible where God is speaking of the serpent. He says that you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And on the cross, Jesus crushed Satan. And that was a crush that was not merely at the the hands of a human. It was God himself. And so we look at a world where we know that Satan has been defeated, but it's not fully realized yet. And we can trust that this God who has been faithful from beginning to now will continue to be faithful to bring about that which he has promised. Our God is a trustworthy God. And church, the trustworthiness of God has to be a comfort to us in trying times. God's faithfulness reminds us that He will always come through because He has always come through. And again, we see that most clearly at the cross where God came through in a way that only God could. God was the one who promised that He would crush the head of Satan, that it would happen. And we found out very quickly in the story of humanity that we couldn't do it because we continued to sin, we continued to rebel, we continued to turn our backs on God like every person in every generation has. But God stepped in where we couldn't, where we couldn't make it work. And though we as humanity had failed to produce a sufficient Savior, God Himself wrapped Himself in flesh and came and walked on this earth. God did what we couldn't. And Jesus Christ lived the perfect life. God did what we couldn't. And Jesus Christ went and died in the place of sinners. He did what we couldn't. And then (laughs) Jesus rose from the dead and did what we couldn't. And he has invited us to come and find faith and freedom in his family forever. Something that we could not have accomplished on our own. The cross and God throughout history testifies to us that our God is a trustworthy God. And God is painting this picture for Daniel and the saints to follow. That I am a God who always comes through. I name kings by name hundreds of years before and make sure they come to power at the exact time I want them there. And God says, and I will topple that kingdom at the exact moment I want it gone. And some of us here and now have to be reminded that God is trustworthy. He always comes through. We have to believe that even as we look at our world right now. Because it is broken and there is death and destruction and hatred and anger all around us. And we have to believe that our God always comes through. It might not be how we want. It might not be when we want. And it might not be what we want. But he will always come through with what is best in his timing. But here's another way that God is offering comfort in trying times. We mentioned this a little bit at the beginning. God is being honest about the hardship. God is being honest about the hardship. I mean, we could read verse 24 again, the hardship, that this little horn will, be, will have great power. But again, it will not be his own. And he will cause outrageous destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. And on and on it goes. And and again, as we mentioned at the very beginning, God has never hid the fact that persecution, trials, sufferings, and hardships will come in this life. 
And that's not just for the people living under Antichus. He has promised that for you who are here, those of you who are watching, anyone who is in Christ, God has told you that faithfulness will bring hardship and persecution and suffering and trial. And church, I don't know about you, but for me, it's actually a comfort to hear that, to be reminded of that. That when it seems like everyone is against me, I can look to God's word and be reminded that God himself said it would happen. He told us this wouldn't be an easy road. And again, for me, there is, there is comfort in that. And the fact that when things seem to just be spiraling out of control, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm doing something wrong. It may very well mean that I'm doing everything right by the power of the Spirit. You know, I know I, I pick on it a lot, but it's just such a heresy in our day and age. I, I just don't know how the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel reckons with living in a broken world. I, I just don't get it. I, I don't know what they do when hardships inevitably come. Because I don't care how much faith you think you have. If you actually have that much faith, all you're doing is basically building up more persecution and more struggle and more trials as you continue to live a more faithful life. Again, God has always been honest with us and that theology is so dangerous because the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel basically declares this idea that God's blessing and his goodness and his kindness poured out to you in health and in wealth and in just the, the overabundance of your family and your work and whatever nonsense you think you want to speak into existence and all that garbage, it basically it stands in, in contrast to the truth. Because in order to believe the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, you have to be willing to declare that God deceived you at some point. That when he said those who want to live a godly life will be persecuted, he was just playing. That in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome this world. God didn't mean that. Jesus said, remember, if they hated you, they hated me first. He didn't mean that. I mean, you have to believe that God deceived you at some point. And I don't know, man, what a scary thing to be in the will of God and think you're out of it. But church, we have to make sure we don't fall into that same abbreviated form of thinking by believing that God's blessings in our life are only experienced in the good moments. Because I'm going to be honest with you, when you ask somebody how the Lord's been blessing them, it's typically only the good things. And we got to make sure we don't get trapped in that thinking and be distracted that, that God only shows up and he's only evident in the good. Listen, I want to tell you that the, I believe the Lord is more in the midst of your suffering and chaos than he is in your times of peace. And there's a blessing of being near Jesus. We can't fall into that trap. God's blessings in our life stand even when the bottom of life falls out. But we trust him. Because he has proven himself trustworthy. And if we want to be like Jesus, we cannot forget that this world was not a comfortable place for Jesus. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head. Hebrews 13, 12 through 14 reminds us, Therefore Jesus suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one that is to come. The city didn't see Jesus as worthy, so they killed him outside of it. 
He had no place in the city, but it says, for we do not have an enduring city. Instead, we seek the one that is to come. And this leads to the third and final way we see God being a comfort in trying times. Because God, as he is communicating Daniel 8 to Daniel in a vision, which Daniel would record for saints for all time, God is calling all the readers of Daniel to find hope in him. To find hope in him. Even as we just read at the very end of Hebrews 13, verse 14, for we do not have an enduring city here. We have to believe that. We do not have a lasting home here. We seek the one to come. We do not place our hope in this world. We do not place our hope in the good things of this world or in things getting better. As I said last week, we don't hope that the world will get better. We believe that the world will be made new. And ultimately, what God is saying in those nine words at the very end of verse 25, yet he will be broken, not by human hands. What God is saying is hope in me. That in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of pain and suffering, that I will be there. And that I will fix it. Again, it might not be how we want. Sometimes God's gracious in fixing our sorrows by taking us out of this world. But he's always faithful. And he's always doing what is best. And ultimately, we are not hoping in a place I want to be clear about that. I know we say that a lot, fix our eyes on our home and where we're going and on heaven, but ultimately we're not really finding our hope in a place. We're finding our hope in the person who dwells there. We place our hope in God and God alone, that he will conquer, that he will see us through, that he is trustworthy. And I want to remind you again that God has shown his faithfulness most clearly in the cross of Christ. He will prevail because he already did break the enemy. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that and therefore the declaration of our life is my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And church, when our hope is found in God alone, it will change how we live here and now. It will change how we engage the lost. It will change how we engage the broken systems of this world. It will change everything when our hope is in God alone. Because we can take, we can take the burden off our own back and believe that God is strong enough to carry it. But church, we must hope in Him. Believing that He is trustworthy. Believing that He has been honest. Believing that He will never let us down. Saying, Augustine once said this, God is not a deceiver that, we should, that he should offer to support us. And then when we lean on him, that he would slip away from us. God is not a deceiver that if he offers to be there, when we lean on him, he won't fall away. So we lean on him, believing that he will never let us down and that he will be our victory because he has already secured it in Christ Jesus. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, that in the midst of struggle and in the midst of trial, that you are present.
and that you are a comfort in trying times. Lord, I thank you that in Daniel 8, we get to see your faithfulness played out. We get to see your trustworthiness. God, we get to see you just shoot the believers of this world straight about the hardship that we'll, we will endure. But God, you have given the ultimate declaration of hope that you will crush the enemy. God, we thank you that that death blow was dealt on Calvary's hill. And we thank you that the blood is strong to not yet reality where you have already crushed Satan, but we have not yet experienced the full measure of that victory. And so, God, we long and we cry out and we declare that we want to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, we pray that you would come back and come back quickly. God, the amazing thing is, is we, your people, try to figure out your word, not being infinite like you, but quite finite. God, we read these stories of, of, uh, and this literature about the end times and try to make sense of it. But there is one thing that we all agree on no matter where we land, God. That the sky will split and the trumpet will sound and Jesus will return. And when he does... You will usher in your kingdom and all things will be made new. So God, I pray that while we wait, we would be found faithful. Not trying to find our hope in the things of this world or the peace of this world. Not trying to find our hope in, in, in stuff and in, in people, but that our hope would be you and you alone. And that we would be faithful to declare that hope, give a defense for the hope that we have, believing, God, that you are still conquering rebel hearts today. God, this week, I pray that we would have the privilege of sharing the gospel and watching as you save someone. Don't let us grow stale. Don't let us grow silent. Don't let us grow stagnant. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.